This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, visitors, friends, it's great as we celebrate the sixth anniversary of our church. I would much rather, and I'm sure you would much rather be together. We could all be together celebrating and enjoying and planning various things uh, for us to, to, to have festivities and all of that. And sadly, we are in the situation we're in. And so we still are happy. We still are excited and we're, we're reflecting on all of the things that have occurred over the last six years. But here's the thing. There are several people that are a part of our church that are watching this, and there are several people who may not have been a part of our church and, and lately have been watching our services. And so I wanted this time to be more about not just our church and not just about what it means to be a part of ICON, but what does it mean to be a part of the church at large? You'll often hear uh, me or Pastor Jen refer to it as uh, the Little C Church versus the Big C Church. Uh, the Little C Church, all of the different local churches of which we are a part. And every one of those churches, including this one, will have our own vision, our values, mission statements, uh, plans, uh, what it means for us to, what are we going to look like in five years? What are we going to look like in 10 years? And all those things have their place. But ultimately, our job as a church, any church, the job is to prepare all of us to be a part of the larger church to be able to worship with the larger church. And ultimately, the, the goal of any church, the goal of the gospel, is to prepare our hearts, our minds, our very lives for revolution. You might wonder why I'm using that word revolution. I know that it's loaded, it's packed with a lot of connotation there. And we'll see why in a minute because I believe revolution might be the best word for us to use when we think or when we answer this question. What does it mean to find a good, healthy church? What is the job of a church? When we started this church, we had uh, some ideas about what we thought the gospel was and what we believe the gospel. We always say that it's, you have what the gospel is and you have what the gospel does. And so we were uh, thinking, how do we communicate that? There's infinite number of ways to, to uh, communicate that. But we came up with a few things, and, and these are some things we can say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. We want to prepare and help prepare the hearts of people to be uh, on mission in that kingdom with, with God. Any good church, any healthy church, I don't care what denomination, any healthy church, when you're looking for a church now, if you're online and you're thinking, hey, I, I, I'd like to be a part of a church. Maybe I live in Virginia. I can't be there at Icon because we'd love for you to be here. Um, and I don't know necessarily what, what is the rubric by which I should evaluate a, a church. Any healthy church should prepare you for a life of revolution. Any healthy church, any, any church that's rooted in the holistic gospel should prepare you for a life of revolution. Paul's going to show us that here in Romans. We're taking a bit of a break from uh, John as we celebrate this anniversary. Uh, and we're going to take a look at some things that Paul has to say to the church in Rome. 
Now, if you don't know much about the church in Rome, this was, uh, there apparently were so many different pockets of people that had become believers. Most scholars would say that Peter and Paul helped kind of plant the first real churches in Rome. And so you've got tons of old church historians that have pointed out different aspects, different impacts that they've had on those churches. But here's what we know. We know that you had a series of house churches all over Rome. Series of churches, people start becoming believers. You had a lot of Jewish believers that had converted. So you had lots of folks who were becoming believers and they were excited. They were, as we say, on fire and they were excited to get started. They had lots of willingness, lots of desire, all of that. They were super stoked. We're like, hey, we got this new faith. We've got this new freedom. We're, we're figuring out and, and learning the finer points of the gospel. But what do we do? What do we do? Okay, I, I believe in Jesus. Now what? This is where this passage comes in. Because this is what Paul is doing is he's giving kind of the marching orders really from God. This is what it means for you to follow. You know, it's, it's when we talk about revolution and you think about uh, what it means to revolt against a thing. There has never been a revolution in which change was not sought after. Every time there's a real revolution, you are seeking real change. And so what Paul is showing them is it's great that you guys have this fire and it's great that you have this willingness, but a willingness without wisdom is always foolish. A protest without principles is always foolish. The, the desire without real direction is always foolish. So if you've got a, a, a protest, and protests are great, we should be about protest. Anywhere where the kingdom of God is not on display, the people of God should be in revolt, whatever that looks like, in protest. But anytime we do that, without real wisdom, we become dangerous, and we definitely don't become discipled. So to that end, let's take a look at this passage. Let's take a look at what Paul shows this church in Rome about what it means to not only be willing to follow Jesus, but to have the wisdom necessary to indeed follow him. So he's going to show what it means to truly follow him. He's going to show what our lives should look like once we really have the wisdom alongside the willingness to follow. And I think that there's going to be some things here, hopefully, that clarify the ways in which we should be about revolution every day of our lives. So let's read together Romans chapter 12. We're going to go through the entire chapter. We won't talk about every uh, point here because honestly, if you know anything about Romans, this is kind of Paul's theological treatise. And so there's so many aspects that we would, I would love for us to get into, but we won't get into all those today, but we will read through all 21 verses. Let's read together Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse one. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many 
are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not uh, or give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot here, and, and if you've been in church for any period of time, you've probably heard this and read this and maybe even memorized these passages. I think that contextually there are some things here that we really need to point out. And so I just want to point out a few areas of real revolution and why we're using this word uh, revolution here. What does it mean to revolt against something that should be changed? What does it mean to advocate for real change to happen? So if you just kind of outline kind of the way that Paul walks through this particular portion of his letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, you notice that uh, he, he starts with this internal revolution that needs to happen first. There needs to be a reckoning uh, within. In, in many ways, if you've ever been like me and you get uh, a new uh, a, a box that has something that needs to be assembled, and if you're stubborn like me, you could be, you know, I don't need the directions. I'm smart, I'm logical, I can just figure it out. And so you start putting together whatever widget that you're putting together and eventually it looks nothing like what it was on the box. You had the willingness to do it, but you were completely without wisdom. That is something that I think some of us may have some experience with. We need real wisdom in, in not just the willingness, right? Well, what Paul is showing is you can't acquire that wisdom on your own. The chapter before, he had just been talking about what it means specifically about Israel rejecting Christ and that uh, that's not final and something will really change. And eventually that internal change will happen. It needs to happen without some type of internal rebellion or internal revolt, internal revolution. We can't be about revolution. It won't do any good to be at a protest, as we said, to be at a protest and not know why you're there. Nothing is worse than a protest without any real principles guiding the protest. And so if Paul is saying, hey, we've, in order for real revolution to happen in the community, revolution has to happen in your heart. 
Now, what, is, what are you revolting against? Well, take a look at these first few verses again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, so there's your foundational principle, because of the mercy that's been shown to us, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that passage has often been used to uh, almost police people's bodies. People will automatically kind of bring up that quote when it's like, hey, we don't want you to have tattoos. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Hey, we don't want you doing X, Y, and Z with person X, Y, and Z. Present your body as a living sacrifice. And while some of those things may have an application here or there, that isn't the point Paul's making here. Paul is ultimately saying, in order for you to get to a place where genuine wisdom from God is actually embedded in you, some type of revolution has to happen. Something has to change internally first, which is why he says, don't be conformed to this age. Some translations say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. This is such a big point here. There's got to be a change in thought. Now, back in those days, uh, the, the mind and the heart so often would be used interchangeably. So we'll say, uh, you know, we've got to make sure that we have a, you know, a changed mind and a changed heart. That is more idiomatic. That's not necessarily a real thing. Everything that happens, every decision that's made, every feeling we have is governed by the mind first, right? The axons and the dendrites and the synaptic gaps all form together to form real thoughts and send those messages all over the body. So if your heart is beating faster, it's because your mind told it to do it. So, so there's nothing that you do that's disconnected from your mind. There's nothing that you feel that's disconnected from your mind. So if something's going to change about you, yes, we need a changed heart. There's no question. And we get what that means symbolically. But if your mind is not changed, you are not really about revolution even within. Our mind, now, what does our mind need to be changed from? Well, there's a way in which we think, no matter where you live in this world, no matter what corner of the globe you live on, you have a way of thinking that has been inculcated for you based on your culture, based on your ge geography, based on your family, based on your experiences. We all have them. We all have a, a basic operating system by which we judge and, and interact with the world. Some of, the, some of those things are good and helpful. Some of those things are very damaging. Some of those things have even been fatal for some. And so we can't just trust our operating system. We can't just trust our default ways of doing things. We can't just trust how we feel about a thing. We can't even trust how we think about a thing. Because if real revolution hasn't happened, we're still thinking the unhealthy ways. So, when pe so, so many, in many ways, what Paul is showing is, Listen, I just shared with you the gospel. Now here's, what, here's your response to it. Here's what you now need to do. Based on the mercies of God that have been shown, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that has bought and purchased your salvation so that you are now righteous in God's eyes. Based on that truth, here is how you respond. Be transformed. How? Not through your good works per se, not through your willingness to change, but by the renewing of your mind, by the very wisdom of God. That's what actually changes us. So that, so why do we need that? So that you may discern what is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. What is the role of a good church? The role of a good church is to get to a place where you are on personal revolution. The role of a good church is to prepare you 
to be to, to revolt against all the ways that you think or feel that are not in accordance with what uh, God thinks and feels. That's the role of a healthy church. Little C, to, to prepare you to worship and be about that life with the rest of the church, big C, past and present and future. There's another thing about this passage that's interesting. When he says, uh, by the renewing of your mind, this is how you can know what God's will is for you. And there's so many different things. We don't even have time to talk about what does it really mean, God's will? What does it mean there? But whatever it means, the way you acquire it has nothing to do with uh, just you're feeling your way into it. It has nothing to do with trying to connect different dots in our lives. And as soon as they seem like they fit some kind of a pattern, now we know that's God's will. That's actually not how it's meant to be. Many times when we're seeking God's will in our lives, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or where I'm supposed to go or who I'm supposed to be or who I'm supposed to be with or should I be with anyone? All these different things, right? Professional, personal, relational, all those things. Many times what we'll say is, well, you know what? Just pray about it and he'll just reveal it to you. That sounds really, really holy and good. And it's not to say that God can't do that. There are cases in the Bible where he has certainly done that. But, from a, but, but honestly, the way that the regular manner in which God shows us his will is not through, it's not even through, let me just, I mean, prayer is vitally important, but it's not just through, let me subjectively wait for a certain answer to prayer. Then I'll know that's what God wants for me. Because if your mind has not been renewed, then what you think you're hearing in prayer may not even be right. If your mind hasn't been renewed, what you think you're connecting and you're calling it God might not even be God. So our minds need to be renewed. In other words, to have a renewed mind, that word renew is, the, is this word metanoia. We, we see this in many times when, it's, when we talk about repentance, when we talk about changing. There's this idea of it's the same word that's used of Jesus at the transfiguration. It's the same word for transfiguration. This word is only used three times in the Bible. Once here, once at Jesus' transfiguration, and once in 2 Corinthians when it talks about being transfigured into the very image of Christ, being conformed into the image of Christ. We are supposed to be completely revolutionized. And we're revolutionized in order to be revolutionary. So something has to change, right? It can't just be the same. The way I think has to change. And the only way that I know the will of God is when my thinking has been changed to his thinking. That's the only way that I know. Even hard things. How do I know how to respond to this thing? How do I know how to engage this thing? We're getting ready to look now at how that fleshes out in the rest of this text. Because Paul knows that they're asking questions we would ask. All right, I hear you. You're talking about being changed and my mind changing. What does that mean? What things about the way that I live and the way that I think and the way that I engage what areas of those things need to actually change? And not just behaviorally, but internally. What, what things need to change? Well, he says this, right? As he moves on, he says, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. So there's a humility that we should naturally have. Now, basically, we, we, we know for him to have to say this, for him to have to say, don't be conformed to this world, don't be conformed to this age, Every single thing he brings up here shows that this is whatever he says do, that's the opposite of what you normally would do. Whatever he says do here, right? Because everything he's giving you is now what revolution looks like, which means the norm is the opposite. So if he says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think, you know what that means? That our natural tendency is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Goes back to renewing our mind. 
If you just trust yourself to think your way into the right answer, you're thinking of yourself too highly. If you think you don't need to really know the mind of God, but you're just going to pray willy-nilly, and I'm saying none of us can pray the way we need to. Paul says that in Romans Romans as well. But if you just think that the only real way of real change is to get to a place where uh, I'm just, I'm not really going to really pursue where God's heart or where God's mind is, but I'm just going to take spaghetti, throw it to the wall and see what sticks, wait to get something back. That's more, you're actually trusting in your ability to pray more than you ought to think. So our, our tendency is to think about ourselves way more highly. How do we do that with each other? Well, we judge, uh, we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge everybody else by their actions. So, so if we end up doing something to harm or hurt someone, well, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't intend that. If you knew my intentions, that'd be that. But then if somebody else comes and hurts us, we don't even care about what the intentions are. We just see what the actions are. And there's a balance in those things. But again, if we just focus on how we, or what Paul is focusing on is your tendency is to think too highly of yourself. That has to change. Doesn't mean to think of yourself too lowly, but you need to think of yourself not too highly. He says, instead, think sensibly. As God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. We know that clearly there were uh, ways in which the, the Romans functioned the way we do. They were esteeming themselves based on what they had, what they could do. They were esteeming themselves based on their position. They were doing, uh, they were doing what we kind of do, start separating into almost caste systems. Those are those groups over there. They do that, but they don't do what we do over here. And so Paul realizes, hey, that way of thinking, that's normal for the culture. That's normal for the, 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 the area in which you live. That's a, that's a very cultural uh, thing. But that needs to change. Something has to change uh, in a revolutionary sense. So instead of thinking that way, he, he starts pointing out, now as a measure, I'm sorry, now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts don't have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is big because he's saying, stop thinking in, the, in this way of it's just me. Stop thinking in a way that says that uh, the way that I function, it's my life. It's the way I want to do things. And as long as people are on board with me, that's where I'm going. I get that's a message that, that uh, connects now, right? Be about yourself. And if other people can't get on board, that's on them. And to some degree, yeah, right? To some degree, we're not uh, to be doormats and we're supposed to stand for things that, that, that matter. But what Paul is pointing out is, If you just think that way, without a renewed way of thinking, you're going to be a self-worshipper and you're going to actually be in in opposition to God. Because what he's saying is think differently. The way you should be thinking is um, that we are not all just a bunch of separate pieces, some better, some worse. We are all a part of one body. Whatever your gifts and talents, education, backgrounds, money, whatever it is, that does not separate you from your brother or sister in Christ. It ought not be some kind of a boundary or an obstacle that is unable to be transcended, right? There's got to be a way in which the, change, uh, the, the, the mindset has been changed and revolutionized so that we don't function the way that normal culture functions. So we don't separate based on that. What does that look like uh, practically? That means that you just don't have, if you've got uh, elders, oftentimes elders in churches will almost always be, hey, our CEO types, those are the elders, right? And we don't even, we may not even intend for it to look this way, but oftentimes what that means is the folks who are like CEO type business leaders, typically more affluent, those are the ones that we want to be our leaders. 
And you typically don't have maybe a lower, uh, a, a not a, yeah, someone that people would look at as like lower educated, and maybe they're a laborer. How often are they in those types of roles, right? Because so often we don't even realize we're doing it, but something really needs to change in our mindset where that's not even how we esteem each other. So here, Paul is saying, that's one thing that needs to change. You Romans, and really you Americans, uh, you separate yourself individually based on all of these various factors. And you don't see yourself the way you should. We need to see ourselves as a part of one body. Yes, we have a lot of different functions, and they're all important. They all have different roles. They all have different places. But we need to see ourselves as one body. Then he explains what it means. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching and teaching, if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. We can't go through all of those, spend time in those. Because I really, I'd love for you to kind of figure out, do you see yourself in any of these? Prophecy, the speaking of the word of God boldly, right? Using it according to the proportion of one's faith. What does that mean? If I'm already gifted as a speaker, I can actually function outside of relying on God. I can just function off the very strength of my gift. Once I do that, I'm not functioning in God's will anymore. And so, so apply that thinking through the rest of those, because those are really big. But moving on, verse nine, this is the big one, okay? How do I live a revolutionary life? How do I be about real revolution? We love using that word. It's really popular. I want to change. I want change. Give me liberty. Give me death. How do you truly live the life of a revolutionary? Paul says the best way for you to actually be a revolutionary is to love like a revolutionary. It's not even a fight like a revolutionary or yell like a revolutionary or picket like a revolutionary. All those things have their place. But ultimately, if you're going to be someone that has been revolutionized so that you can be revolutionary, you need to love like a revolutionary. How do you do that? Well, let your love be without hypocrisy. We've talked about that word hypocrisy before, right? What it means to be a hypocrite. Ultimately, in the Greek, it just means one who operates from under a mask, one who performs. What, what Paul is saying here is that, listen, Romans, y'all might even say you love each other. You might use the word love in various ways, but your love is really performative. Your love is very much rooted in like, I like to sound like I love you, and I'd love for other people to see me show how much I love you, even though nothing about my love is transformative. See, true love should transform, not just conform. True love should transform. So if it's not enough to just be like, well, I, I, I love you, and I told you that I love you, or I love God, and I've told people that I love God, but, but ultimately all that language, I was just stunting for the gram, as they say. I was just putting it out there so other people would have this idea that that's who I am. Or I just wanted you to, I wanted you to believe that I loved you because there's something from you I really want in return. If I don't get that in return, you'll notice that my performance ends. That's not what real revolutionary love looks like. That's what love looks like when we're conformed to the culture, right? It's this quid pro quo that has become very popular over the last year. This idea that you do something for me, I do something for you. You do something bad for me, I do something bad to you. I stop doing the good thing for you if you stop doing the good thing for me. Let love be without hypocrisy. Then he has to add, detest evil, cling to what is good. That's a real point to what it means to love God. So a revolutionary way to love God is not to just say you love God. 
A revolutionary way to say that you love Jesus is not just to sing songs about Jesus. You realize at the very beginning, when Paul starts this whole thing, he says, this is the test. This is what it looks like for you to truly worship. He says, uh, uh, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. That means everything that's being listed here is what it means to worship. You know what he never says? Singing a good song. That doesn't mean we don't sing. We have other passages that say sing to the Lord, right? Shout to the heavens and, and sing his praises, right? That, that, but here, when Paul talks about living out worship, because you realize worship is a lifestyle. It's not a music style. Worship is a real lifestyle. And he's telling you, here's what your worship looks like. Don't tell me that you love God and sing about God, and yet you don't detest evil. This idea of seeing, what does it mean? Anytime I look out in the world and I see areas where the kingdom is not present, and another kingdom is in place, right? Another way of thinking, another way of treating people, ways in which we don't love people. We should hate that. Sometimes we don't even like using the word hate because it just sounds like bad. But really, if you're going to be about revolution, then, and, and for, for those who, if you know anything about American history, there were things that people felt like were tyrannical and they hated it. And so they demonstrated their hatred by revolting, fighting, damaging property, looting, rioting, all the things that we seem to take pride in, but when other people are doing it or we think they're doing it, we seem to have a different mindset, but that's not the sermon. Here, what Paul is saying is detest evil, cling to what is good. So, so, so ultimately, if you love God, don't just talk about it, be about it. How do you show you love God? By hating what's evil. Sometimes that means dealing with flack because you've said, hey, that's evil, that's wrong. Sometimes you get flack because you're like, hey, people shouldn't be treated that way. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Because next he says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Listen, if all their love has been performative, they're not loving really like brothers and sisters. Assuming that you got a good relationship with your brother and your sister. They're, clearly they're loving performatively. They're loving by putting the mask on and saying, this is how I show you that I love you, even though I'm not really caring about your real needs, like a sibling would, right? Even though I'm not really getting or knowing really where you truly are. I'm not uh, understanding where your real pain is. I'm not really understanding where your real joys are. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Why does he have to say this? Because our tendency is to not do that. We expect the other person to outdo us in honoring ourselves. That's what we expect. We expect them in many ways, right? That it's your job. I'm not really going to try to outdo you in the way you love me. I'm perfect. I'm more comfortable with you outloving me than me outloving you if we made it a competition. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, in other words, if your heart has truly been revolutionized, if your mindset has been changed, then you are motivated by loving the other more than loving yourself. You're motivated by that. It's not even a reactionary thing. It is the first cause. That's what happens in your heart. You go, how can I love this person? That means when you meet people, you don't just size them up to figure out, okay, where's the weak spot? Hey, okay, what's the real thing about them? You go, how do I learn them well so that I know how to love them well? Same thing for marriage. I tell couples all the time. You get into a place where you're like, how do I outdo? How do we, in a cute way, how do we outdo one another in loving each other well? And this doesn't just mean buying gifts, doing things, physical stuff, uh, intimacy. We're talking deeper stuff. How do I outdo you in knowing you? How do I outdo you in listening to you, in hearing you? 
and as he builds on, don't lack in diligence and zeal. Guess what? If you're going to love people like family, you're going to love people like brothers and sisters, you're going to love like a revolutionary, it's exhausting because people are hard. I am difficult to love at times. You are difficult to love at times. If you're married, I've talked to your spouses. You are difficult to love at times. If you're single, I've talked to your friends and I've talked to you. You are difficult to love sometimes. But guess what? When you're family, like brothers and sisters, that doesn't stop you. When you just function like the culture, it might. But when you function like a Christian, it never happens. And you're, you're going, you know, they're hard, but I love them and I'm there and I'm loyal and I'm going to stay there and I'm going to be diligent with all zeal. It can be near impossible to be zealous about loving people when they're difficult. Now, that doesn't mean that loving someone who's difficult means taking abuse and living in toxicity. That's a totally different thing, right? You have to figure out how to love people where they are. Sometimes loving from afar is the most healthy way to love. That's just what it is. And you got to figure that out. And that's where the wisdom of God has to come in and the community of God's people come in to help figure out what that looks like. But we have to make sure that our heart posture is one that says, even if I'm broken because there's a breakdown in my family, let it be a brokenness over. It's difficult for me to love them right now well. Or maybe they're making it hard. They don't even want to receive love from me well. Even in that morning, that's something we can connect with, which is what he gets to in a little bit. Because that's where he says, right after that, he goes, uh, don't like diligence and zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. All of these things are connected to our worship. So the way that I love you is connected to the way that I worship God. So if I don't love you well, I am not a true worshiper. If I don't love you zealously, I am not a zealous worshiper. That's why it can be difficult when someone has been completely harsh or horrible or mean or sinful to you. And then you have to see them do some performative worship thing in a service or make a statement that sounds really churchy to someone else. And you're like, but you are like being horrible to this person. And we struggle with that. That's where real conflict happens. Then he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. This again is what it looks like when our hearts and our minds are truly revolutionized. We are able to not just have hope, but have joy in the midst of hope, which is extremely hard right now. How do I rejoice in hope? I, the only way that I rejoice in hope is when I hold on to the wisdom of God and not just the wisdom of myself and the wisdom of the culture. Because if I look at the culture right now, I look at the wisdom of the leaders around us in any generation, there's not a whole lot of hope there. And if it is, it's a false hope. But if I have real hope in Jesus and what he's called us to do, if I can have hope in I'm on mission to love in a revolutionary way, and because I've been loved in a revolutionary way, I have incredible hope that that's going to continue. It's going to be hard. I'm not always going to see it the way that I want to see it, but I have hope that that will continue, and that gives me joy. That's what we fight for. That's what we pray for. It's not always perfect. But we pray, Lord, give me joy in the midst of things that in my eyes, they don't look like they would be joyful right now. Then he says, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. See what he's building on here, right? He starts with love for God. Then he goes to how we love each other. This is revolutionary because this was not something that people were uh, often, this is not something they did out of a default heart position. It was very much kind of like what we have now, kind of this social Darwinist uh, approach. Hey, survival of the fittest. If you didn't know how to uh, take advantage of that uh, 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 benefit that this country offers and you didn't know that, that's on you. 
Where have you been all this time? I knew about it. It's not that hard. All you have to do is look up X, Y, and Z on the internet, not to mention the fact that maybe the person you're talking to doesn't have access to uh, high-speed internet maybe, right? So it's really easy to take that kind of mentality and go, you know, you're just lazy. You didn't take advantage of a certain thing that you could have done. You could have been where I am, but you weren't. So I have no reason to be able to take care of you because your laziness got you there. That's not the heart of God. That's not what it means to be a revolutionary. That's what it means to be conformed to this world. That's what it means to be conformed to this age. So share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. That's not a reactionary phrase. That's not like when somebody who needs hospitality comes upon you, respond. We should. But if you're thinking like a Christian that says, I want to outdo one another in loving, you look for ways to be hospitable. Yes, there is a gift of hospitality for sure. So you could say, well, that's not my gift. But in a very objective sense, just very generally, we still should always be about, hey, I want to have a posture that says, how can I be of help? How can I help uh, make people's difficult situations a little bit better? If conditions are difficult, what do I need to do to ameliorate those conditions? What, is there anything in my power, in my purview, within my own degree of privilege that I can do to help make that a little bit easier? That's what it means to be us. But we're supposed to pursue that. Not just wait for it to fall on us. We're supposed to pursue it. Then bless those who persecute you. What? That nothing makes sense about that. In any culture, in any anywhere, somebody persecutes you and you're supposed to bless or seek their good and well-being? The only way that works is if you have been loved in that way. The Bible says that we at first were enemies of God. In many ways, our rebellion is another way that we persecute God. God loved his persecutors, so we love ours. Now, how does that work? It's going to vary. But on some level, even if you don't know how that looks, you, we need to say, Lord, I want my heart to be revolutionized in a way where I am capable, where the willingness and the wisdom, they marry together and I learn how to love those who persecute. And it may even just mean, Lord, give me a heart that is not seeking active revenge against this person. Bless and do not curse. Then he goes, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Think about this. When we think through what it means to love revolution as a church, right? Little C, we need to be equipped and prepared to hear the wisdom of God and be changed by the wisdom of God so that when people are weeping, we have the wisdom and the willingness to enter into their weeping. This is where we find ourselves right now as a nation, churches in this nation. We've been here for, for a really long time, really since, since, since its inception. We have always struggled with weeping with those who are weeping. Now, we don't mind weeping with those who weep about the things we would weep over, right? Those things are completely understandable. But when, you're, when someone is weeping about something uh, about which you just don't have a lot of experience, knowledge, you might even disagree that it's a real issue, but they're weeping. Are you able to enter into that weeping? And really what that means is the wisdom of God should inform that to go, are they weeping about something that God is weeping about? See, the reason why you and I, the reason why we struggle with weeping with those who weep is because we start with, is this something I would weep over? Instead of asking the question, is this something God weeps over? The reason why it's easy to overlook certain things that are just horrendous, the reason why it's easy to, to, to see travesties in our own country historically. I didn't mean to go here, but I'm going to. How is it possible for churches centuries ago 
to see horrific things happening and still just keep on worshiping? How is it possible for churches to just keep singing the same hymns, preaching the same sermons, teaching the same great theology, having the same prince of preachers preach over and over again and see the great enlightenment? We don't even see just how damaging that kind of language is. The enlightenment is happening while the darkening of people's lives are happening concurrently. And we call that enlightenment. We've never been good at weeping with those who weep because we've never been good at worship. And that is something that Paul says, this is what real revolution, uh, revolutionary living looks like, revolutionary loving looks like. This is what it means for our hearts to be revolutionized. We rejoice, we celebrate the things that people are celebrating. Specifically, if they're celebrating something God celebrates, we're with them. If there are things that they're weeping about that truly break God's heart, we need to be in that same place. So here's my question. When you see people weeping, crying, when you see people on TV crying out and asking for people to care about what's going on, when you see someone talk about real injustice that they've suffered, do you just lean back on uh, maybe your political talking points on either side? Do you just lean back on your uh, experiences that you've had? Do you just lean back on the words of those in whom you've placed your trust, like grandparents and parents and, and family members and friends and disciplers and pastors? Do you lean on that or do you lean on God? It makes no sense to be in a church where Jesus is not there. And Jesus is not in a church where people don't rejoice with those who rejoice and especially don't weep with those who weep. So your Christianity is Christless. This is what Paul is getting to. You're living the life of a conformed uh, person to the culture. You're not living the life of one who's been transformed by the very heart of Jesus Christ. If you're transformed, then you weep. All the folks who you see people now, yes, it's the elephants in the room. We're dealing with people struggling through issues of race and issues of uh, 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 sexism, issues of sexual harassment. You've got people who have dealt with things for centuries, groups that have dealt with things for centuries. And there are many who are just struggling with just weeping with them. Instead, well, convince me that I should weep. You know, as Paul doesn't say, make sure that you learn uh, that you agree with the reasons they weep before you weep. No. The biggest thing you need to know is, does God grieve this? Because they're weeping. And even if I don't know for sure, be on the safe side and enter in. Hey, what's happening? Well, how are you hurt? What's hurting you? What's giving you this fear? This is, this is a part of the, of the church right now, especially in America, but I know in other countries. This is part of the church where it's so difficult. There are people right now, if what Paul is saying is true, and this is a sense, this is uh, the evidence of our true worship, right? And you know, you see Jesus constantly saying, people will know who I am and they will follow me based on your love for one another, right? With love and kindness have I drawn thee, right? These things happen over and over again. This is what he says. When you love one another well, it will always be attractive. I can tell you right now, there are people, women, people of color are leaving the church and no, it's not because of some horrific liberal agenda and people just, they just hate Jesus. Many of these folks wanna follow Jesus, but they keep seeing a lack of Jesus in the church. What's a good church? A church that's going to prepare you for real revolution. How does revolution look? Living life the way Jesus does, seeing uh, people the way Jesus does, loving people the way Jesus does, loving people the way Jesus loved you. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. All of these things are the things that preclude us from rejoicing and weeping with one another. I'm wise in my own estimation. My favorite talking head on talk radio told me this. I did my YouTube research and it told me this. I'm wise in my own estimation and I will overlook the weeping and the suffering of people who are made in God's image. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You realize that all these things he's just laid up are a part of what it means to pursue peace are part of what it means to actually be peaceful. We've said this before, uh, Pastor Jen has preached on this before, what it means to really seek in the Hebrew, the shalom of God, right? Peace is not just the absence of conflict. What does it mean to, to, to willingly pursue the way he calls us to pursue hospitality? When things are broken and life is not lived the way it was meant to be lived, what does it mean to actively pursue mending that again? So that things are functioning the way they were meant to function. People are thriving the way they were meant to thrive. People are flourishing spiritually, relationally, uh, financially, whatever. They're flourishing the way that, 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 that God meant back in the garden. That's what it means to seek out peace. As much as it lies within you, live peaceably. This is not just agree to disagree. This is if there's a reason, if there's something that's causing real division, I'm going to actively pursue ways to remove the reason for the fission, to remove the reason for the division. I'm going to actively figure out how do I remove the reason why we've split up to begin with? How do I do that? How do I figure out whatever's causing you harm? How do I figure out how to remove that? This is what revolutionary living and loving looks like. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. We kind of touched on that before. Then he finally ends with this passage from the Old Testament. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. A lot can be said about this, but ultimately, here's what we'll, we'll say. If you have a revolutionized heart, then you don't walk in this icy idea of I'm getting mine eventually. I'm going to extract my pound of flesh from this person. Here's the thing. Everybody thinks that way. That's the culture. So when you change the game on someone and say, listen, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to seek out your real flourishing. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You've done me wrong and you owe me, but I'm going to go and make sure that you're taken care of first. And this isn't even, I think some people think this is like Jesus or Paul saying, and this is how you thumb your nose at him. But that's not really what this is saying. He's just making a statement of fact. Because if the other person has not been renewed yet, then that's what's funny about this. The, the, the renewed mind would go, I'm so thankful for the, for the, for the uh, uh, hospitality and love that you've shown me. But when you function the way the world does, when you function the way that these other cultures function, then you're going to be like, why are you doing that? You're trying to have power over me. You're doing something good for me. You're trying to actually have some type of leg up over me. You're going to leverage this later. Why? Because that's what I would do. Why? Because that's how we think in this culture. And what Jesus and what uh, uh, Paul is saying is function differently. Live like a revolutionary. And he ends with do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. What makes a healthy church? What makes a good church? A church that prepares you for individual revolution and then real, lived out, systemic revolution. That's how we conquer evil. We conquer evil really because we're not the conqueror. 
We conquer evil because we've been loved by the ultimate conqueror, the ultimate victor over evil, over death, over hell, over the grave itself. And if Jesus had the power and the love and the grace and the mercy to love us in this way, to love us in such a way that says, I will not be overcome by the world and you won't either. I came and I have overcome the world so that you can as well. Evil won't win. Evil's already lost. And the only way we believe that is when we've been renewed. So here's what this really means. If we don't live a life of real revolution, if we don't live a life where our thinking, our mindset has been renewed, we are still functioning and being overcome by evil. Even our, our motivations are, rule, are rooted in evil. Even the good that we do are tainted. It's tainted and littered with aspects of our pride and aspect, aspects of real evil. We cannot, there's no possible way for us to truly live a life of worship if we don't live a life of individual revolution and systemic revolution, a type of revolution that's not rooted in self, but a revolution that is rooted in the very heart of God. What does it mean to be a part of a church? Here we are six years later, our goal, we know we're not doing it perfectly and we're always wondering, are we hitting the mark? But the goal is how do we be a people, even as leaders, how do we be a group of folks who are continually revolutionized? It's a continual thing. And then how do we communicate that lifestyle of constant revolution that's lived internally and lived externally? That's what the gospel is all about. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for six years. I thank you for uh, the ways in which uh, this church has, be, has been your church. God, so many of the things that, and I'm sure churches all over the world will feel this way. So many times we uh, have plans and we have visions. You tell us in your word uh, that a person might make uh, their plans, but you order our steps. God, you have uh, shown that even the things that we make, the plans that we make, they're always written in pencil. I'm so thankful that your wisdom is the pen that writes over all of that. So God, I pray for your wisdom right now. I'm thankful for those of us that are willing but God, I pray that you would give us real wisdom. I'm thankful that there are those of us that want to protest, but I'm thankful and I pray that you give us your principles. There are many of us that are uh, uh, decidedly ready to, to go out and, and act. God, we have decided to do a thing and yet we have no real direction. God, I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church that is prepared to worship with the church at large the church in the past, the church in the present, and the church that is to come. We pray that now. We thank you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the benediction from God together, this final blessing, right? This revolutionary blessing. Some of the things you hear in this uh, uh, benediction go against what culturally would even be true. Even culturally, the way that other cultures viewed God, this is completely different. So listen to these words. You've heard them many times, but listen again and let that sink in. Hear the heart of revolution, God-centered wisdom rooted in revolution. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all of God's family, all of God's church, all of God's people said, amen. Happy anniversary, church. Praise God from whom all
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.